You are listening to True Crime Twins, a new true crime podcast produced by Crawlspace Media. Welcome to True Crime Twins. I'm your host, Chloe, here with your other host, Melina. Melina, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well. Excited to be here. How are you? I am wonderful. I'm very excited to be recording our first episode. You might know me from the Crawl Space podcast. I cover the disappearance of Brianna Maitland from 2004 there. Tim and Lance are producing this show and letting us branch off on our own. I'm excited to be doing this with my identical twin sister. The first case we're going to jump into is the unsolved murder of Faith Hedgepeth. Faith was a promising and beautiful 19-year-old third-year student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill when she was murdered on September 7, 2012. Faith was born on September 26, 1992 in Warren County, North Carolina. She was a member of the Halua Saponi Native American tribe and was the daughter of Connie and Roland Hedgepeth. Although there is a multitude of evidence in this case, which includes but is not limited to a DNA sample that the Chapel Hill police believes belongs to the killer, a DNA phenotyping sketch which includes the face of what the killer probably looks like, a handwritten note left behind at the scene, and a host of viable suspects, Faith's homicide remains unsolved. Faith was lively and bright, an excellent student who hoped to attend medical school following graduation and become a pediatrician. She had earned the Gates Millennium Scholarship for her academic achievements. She was highly social and had many friends. Faith's expansive social circle actually proved to be challenging for detectives to comb through in their search for viable suspects. A shocking part of this case is that almost 800 DNA samples have been submitted for comparison to the DNA sample left behind in Faith's rape kit, but there has been no match. Friends described Faith as responsible and dependable. She also liked to go out and was lovingly described as boy crazy, usually having a boyfriend. Faith at the time was living with her best friend since freshman year, Karina Rosario. It was not on a permanent basis, however. Karina's off-campus apartment only had one bedroom. Faith was getting her housing settled. She had planned to move out into an on-campus dorm once financial aid for the fall semester was available. Faith Hedgepeth's last evening alive unfolded as follows. On the evening of Thursday, September 6, 2012, Faith attended a rush event for the Alpha Pi Omega, the historically Native American sorority at UNC. This was from 5.45 to 7 p.m. that night. Faith and her roommate Karina then went to the campus's Davis Library between 8 and 9. Faith left Karina at the library briefly to visit a friend and returned there at 11.30. The young women then left the library, went back to the apartment, and got ready to go out dancing. They arrived at the Pulse nightclub in downtown Chapel Hill. 
which was a club that while it had a bar and things like that, they admitted individuals under the age of 21 to dance. And they got there at about 1240 a.m. The two danced and socialized for about an hour and a half. They left the club when Karina complained of feeling sick to her stomach from drinking. While the women were at the club, Faith's phone made a call to a female friend, presumably a butt dial, which went to voicemail. This voicemail recorded an inaudible but noticeably heated conversation over loud music. The contents in this phone call have been subject to significant conjecture. Faith's father, Roland, listens to the recording daily. We're going to talk a lot more about this voicemail later on. Surveillance cameras captured Faith and Karina leaving Pulse together at 2.06 a.m. At approximately 3 a.m., the girl's downstairs neighbor heard three loud thumps from their apartment, sounding as if furniture overturned or something heavy was dropped. Also during this time, Faith's Facebook and cell phone were accessed. Text messages were then sent, presumably by Faith, from Faith's phone reaching out to a mutual friend of hers and Karina's, Brandon Edwards. He was an ex-boyfriend of Karina's. The text read, Hey B, can you come over please? Karina needs you more than you know. Please let her know you care. Karina herself also made numerous unsuccessful attempts to reach Brandon at this time. According to a new series, Breaking Homicide, on ID Discovery, messages were sent from Faith's phone to a former boyfriend named Ty McNeil with sentimental words about their relationship past. Karina then contacted a man she had a casual relationship with, UNC soccer player Jordan McCrary. He soon arrived at their apartment complex and picked Karina up, and the two left together. Karina recalled leaving their door unlocked when she left at 4.30 a.m. Karina recalled Faith was asleep when she left. Karina spent the night at Jordan McCrary's residence. The next morning, Karina attempted to arrange a ride with Faith, who was not answering her phone. Another mutual friend, Marisol Rangel, drove Karina home. Shortly before 11 a.m. on September 7th, Karina and Marisol discovered the bloodied and partially clothed body of their friend Faith Hedgepeth in Karina's bedroom. Faith's body was found positioned on the floor, leaned up against the bed. She was partially nude, only wearing a tank top which was pulled over her face. There was a significant amount of blood on the walls and on the bed. A used tampon, Faith's, was found resting on the bed. It has been reported in the media that Faith Hedgepeth was sexually assaulted. However, the investigation on breaking homicide disputed this, presenting testimony from an independent forensic pathologist. The Chapel Hill Police Department has not clarified whether there was evidence of a sexual assault, whether that DNA they found belonging to who they say the killer was, was in the form of semen or what, nor have they released an autopsy report detailing the evidence uncovered in the genital and anal examination. So while this has been vague, I will add that Faith Hedgepeth's parents did tell the media that their daughter was raped, and it has been widely reported and circulated in the media that she was raped and semen was found in a rape kit. But this is a detail that Chapel Hill continues to be vague about, probably 
to protect the prosecution of a later case. Adding to the sexual assault hypothesis was the fact that her bloody tampon was on the bed, which is not a way that a woman would typically dispose of that. So one can surmise that either sexual assault was one of the motives or it was staged to look like that. Found at the scene was the murder weapon, which originated at the home. It was an empty Bacardi peach red bottle, which was unbroken but smeared with Faith's blood. The bottle was used to bludgeon Faith in the head and face multiple times, ultimately causing her death. Also found at the scene was a handwritten note on a white takeout bag. The takeout bag was already in the apartment. It was clean of blood spatter, but it was found next to Faith's body on the bed. Evidence suggests the killer found the bag in the apartment and wrote the note at the crime scene. In three lines and in all capital letters, the letter read, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous. The note implied the motive was jealousy. A handwriting expert that appeared on Breaking Homicide stated that the writer was dysregulated emotionally and overcome by rage. He added that the writer was likely a woman. We'll talk about that more. A contradiction of this conclusion, one of many in this case, is that the DNA of the killer, or at least who the Chapel Hill Police Department believe is the killer, is that of a Hispanic male. CHPD have reported that the killer's DNA was found on a pen used to write the note. Karina Rosario has been suspected of this murder quite heavily by the online community. If you have already followed this case, you'll see that. If you glance through Faith Hedgepeth's Instagram profile, you'll see that comments were posted after her death calling Karina ugly, saying that she's responsible, saying how could she have left the door unlocked. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more. The Chapel Hill Police Department have described her from the beginning as cooperative and stated that she's not a person of interest. Here are some factors that have made people in the citizen sleuthing community question that. First, the butt dial voicemail while Faith and Karina were at the Pulse nightclub captured the muffled sounds of two women talking loudly, occasionally yelling, and at one point, one of the women was screaming. The audio is inaudible, at least to the naked ear. However, Roland Hedgepeth, Faith's father, hears Faith shout, Ow! As Faith went to the pulse with Karina, and the phone was most likely in Faith's pocket, it is possible that the two women arguing in the call were Faith and Karina. Some make the inference that perhaps something was brewing for later on. Next, Karina left Faith alone at the apartment at 4.30 a.m., leaving the front door unlocked in a move that most would consider careless, if not negligent, particularly when Karina's ex-boyfriend, who lived in the apartment complex, had recently broken into that very apartment and assaulted her. Faith actually had driven Karina to file a restraining order against this man, whose name is Eric Decoy Jones. This man, who actually went by his middle name, Decoy, was an aspiring rapper. He ultimately blamed Faith for the breakup with Karina, and after she had driven Karina to file a restraining order against him, he had reportedly threatened to kill Faith. The morning of Faith's murder, Jones posted on Facebook, Lord, forgive me for my sins. 
and the sins I may commit today. Protect me from the girls who don't deserve me and from the ones who wish me dead today. He separately texted a friend that day, also asking him for forgiveness for what he was, quote, about to do. Takoy was ultimately ruled out, or at least is at this juncture, as his DNA does not match that of the killer. He has not been ruled out of having any involvement, however. Jones has not been charged with anything related to Faith's murder. The behavioral criminal profile of the killer weirdly contradicts the DNA profile. This could very well be the key to why this case is cold. The evidence suggests that the killer knew Faith and had intense personal animosity toward her. The motive was likely jealousy due to that note. The killer beat Faith at less than an arm's length away, face to face. The note suggests that the killer is a woman However, the DNA is that of a male and has not been matched to a single person in Faith's circle who have all been swabbed for comparison. And like I said before, that's upwards of 800 people who have been excluded by DNA while every other aspect of this crime, from the personal rage to the handwritten note, these pieces of evidence lead us to believe that she knew her killer But if this was someone that she knew, no one else knew about it because the Chapel Hill Police Department have not swabbed this person yet by all appearances. So this contradiction, the fact that we have an unknown offender, even though all of the characteristics of the crime scene scream familiarity, that just baffles me. Now, this case happened in 2012, so about six years ago, Roland and Connie Hedgepeth were recently interviewed for the show Breaking Homicide, where they said that recently the Chapel Hill Police Department said, it's not if, it's when. I also recently read that they had submitted the DNA profile of the killer to GEDmatch. And for people who haven't been following the most monumental forensic advancement in decades, we're talking about the public database where you can submit a DNA sample and find distant cousins. Now, forensic genealogists Colleen Fitzpatrick and Margaret Press found a way to use this technology to compare the DNA either from an unknown offender or an unidentified body and identify them by comparing it to this huge network, finding a distant cousin, and then connecting the dots using online family trees on websites like Ancestry.com. Notably, this method was used to identify and apprehend the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo, and identify famous unidentified dissidents, Lyle Stevick, Buckskin Girl, who is Marsha King, and Joseph Newton Chandler III. As a follower of this case since 2012, I was thrilled to hear that they had submitted the DNA sample using this technology, but I was a little bit discouraged when I had read an article recently that doctors Fitzpatrick and Press are able to identify 60% of the U.S. population using forensic genealogy, 
but it's 60% of Caucasian people. Now, Faith's killer was Hispanic, and I think that perhaps white people are more likely to submit their DNA to websites like 23andMe and Ancestry, but it gives me a little bit less hope that this method will ultimately identify the killer. When leads stopped coming in at this case and the Chapel Hill police found themselves in a position where things weren't really moving along, they released hundreds of pages of records in this case to the general public, hoping to generate new leads. Now, these records included things like narrative reports, search warrants. They were heavily redacted. Notably missing was Faith's autopsy report. I was able to request a full report through the North Carolina medical examiner's office. Melina has taken extensive anatomy courses and is actually studying to become a nurse. So she actually knows how to read these autopsy reports. I'm sure other amateur detectives have read through it and have tried and are able to pick out a few things, but she's actually able to interpret what's being said and apply it. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about what they found in this autopsy because that's a big part of what evidence has been left behind. So let's get started. Reading through the autopsy kind of painted a picture for us of how truly vicious this murder really was. When you look inside of her skull, you could see that she has something called diffuse subarachnoid hemorrhage, which basically means that in all four lobes of her brain, she had significant bleeding between her pia and arachnoid matter, which are the meninges of the brain, which would have caused extreme intracranial pressure, which would have deprived the brain of oxygen. So she had this all around her brain, which obviously was overkill. And she had extensive defensive wounds to both of her hands All of the injuries were completely frontal. She wasn't necessarily ambushed. She wasn't like snuck up on or anything like that. Faith's official cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. She had cuts and bruises on her face as well as suppressed skull fractures and bleeding within her brain, which only could have been caused by really, really hard blows to the head. The weapon was a empty glass... Bacardi bottle. And Chloe, why wasn't it broken? You know, I skipped physics in high school, so I couldn't tell you, to be perfectly honest, but it was intact and it had her blood and tissue on it, and it is what is assumed to be the primary murder weapon on Breaking Homicide. And I'll continue to make references to it because it did a lot of interesting tests. They actually tested an amount of pressure on the bottle that would be how much an average person would be able to forcefully hit someone and it included the amount of strength that it would require for a female to inflict that kind of damage and the bottle did not break yeah so that kind of is surprising to me because when you think about like movies when somebody like hits somebody in the back of the head with a bottle it typically breaks right but i guess guess. that's not the case here no i think that this might have been the only weapon because there's no evidence of any kind of blows from fists or anything like that right The shape of the wounds on her scalp were vaguely rectangular, which is consistent with the bottom of a bottle. Right. Or the shape of a bottle. Right. That makes sense. So another, here's a direct quote from the autopsy. 
There is no gross trauma to the external genitalia, vagina, or cervix on external examination with a vaginal speculum. So that's telling us that there is no genital injury. Now, I think that it's kind of a common misconception that all sexual assault will result in genital injury. Oddly, on breaking homicide, they brought in an expert, Dr. Cyril Wecht, who is a forensic pathologist. And based on that quote in the autopsy report, he said there is no basis at all that there had been a sexual assault. However, when we're looking into the autopsy report, we see that they collected a specimen from Faith's vagina and submitted it. And it has been reported by the media and her family that she was sexually assaulted. So we have reason to believe that the result of the rape kit is the DNA they have, which they believe is the killer. So I actually did some research on this because I was curious by that statement. And I was reading some peer-reviewed articles and statistics indicate that 40 to 60% of adults had genital trauma resulting from rape. So it doesn't even happen every time. But interestingly enough, research has shown that the presence and the evidence of genital injury is a significant factor in cases and prosecution that come with a guilty verdict. That is a significant factor in the success of a prosecution of a accused rapist. So that's a tangent. But the point is, just because she did not have genital injury doesn't mean she wasn't raped. I think that the evidence otherwise indicates that she was just by the way that her tampon was removed and disposed of, that implies rape to me. The fact that she wasn't clothed and the fact that her shirt was pulled over her head. I don't know why. I just feel like a staged rape is far-fetched. I think that it is too. I don't really see why somebody would think to do that. Why would they think to stage that? Well, if someone is in their right mind while they're committing a crime like this and our killer clearly was not in his right mind while doing this, he was completely consumed with anger they will probably be trying to think of ways to conceal what they've done and get away with it and not go to jail. So that could be staging a scene to look like something else so that they are not under suspicion. This is seen in domestic cases where the killer will break a window to fake force entry. People stage things to look like different things, but I I think the evidence just suggests that Faith was sexually assaulted and they collected a sample at her autopsy. Mm-hmm. And I guess you could go as far as saying that if it was a staged rape, that it could have been staged if it was a female killer because you don't typically associate rape with a female assailant. But I think that's too far-fetched. I don't know. Maybe I just have a hard time picturing a woman doing that. But what do you think? What I always come back to is that the Chapel Hill police have DNA from the killer or who they believe is the killer and you'd think that they would have strong belief to think that before they would go out and say it right yeah they they believe it's from the killer and like i said it's been reported in the media that the dna came from semen from a rape kit as well as perhaps skin cells or sweat from the pen that wrote the note and it was a male so i really don't think it was a female but let's kind of go off of that and talk about the handwritten note at the crime scene on the bed where faith's body was sort of halfway off there was a handwritten note that read in all capital letters i'm not stupid bitch jealous the handwriting was unregulated and disjointed 
What does the note tell us? And who was the note for? The note was without blood spatter or smears, but it was discovered on the bed where Faith was found. This tells us that the note was not already on the bed when Faith was being beaten. It also tells us that it was written with clean hands and placed with clean hands onto the blood spattered bed. The pen used to write the note was confirmed to be the killer by DNA. So was the note for Faith? Or was it for who would almost certainly discover her body? Karina Rosario, the resident of the apartment. You know what? I actually never thought about that. That the note could have been intended for her. Or maybe the killer wanted to say that to Faith, but it was too late. She was already gone. Right. They killed her in a rage, and that was something that they wanted to tell her. But they couldn't because she was dead, so they express their emotion through writing a note but yeah it's when i think about the note i think about what's the function of this note who is it for who are they wanting to read it so if it's someone that's just in a frenzied state and they didn't get a chance to say these things i suppose it could have been faith and i think my intuitively i feel like it was for faith but it's interesting to consider what if it was for someone else and what is this person trying to communicate right Starting with, I'm not stupid. Let's unpack that a little bit. What this is saying is the writer of the note is implying that the target believes that they're stupid. And this made the writer feel disrespected. Angry. And people can react really disproportionately to disrespect depending on their upbringing and depending on what their values are. Sometimes depending on the values of your family or where you grew up the respect from someone else can mean everything especially if it's somebody who you know and you feel like that they tricked you or try to deceive you it'll make you think that they think that you're stupid right so it couldn't have it's possible that it wasn't someone believing that faith directly called them stupid but faith in their perception could have been behaving in a way where she was treating that person like they were stupid, like that they wouldn't catch on to something sneaky. Or so they perceived. Right. The next line, bitch. Now, this word made the handwriting analyst on Breaking Homicide say that this language is not often used by men, and therefore he believed the writer was a woman. Now, I normally would agree with that, Because I would think in a friendly manner or a casual way, women are more likely to use the word bitch. But when it's it's in an angry context like this one, where someone ends up dead and it was a particularly violent beating, I don't think it matters if you're male or female. I don't think it's far-fetched to imagine that person would call a woman a bitch, male or female. I agree with that. The last line is the word jealous. So why does this writer think that Faith is jealous? Jealous of what? Yeah, and when I first heard that, I kind of pictured it being like jealous, like with a question mark, like asking her if she's jealous or you think that she's just being called jealous. Right. I mean, it's not complete sentences and there's no punctuation, so it's kind of impossible to... to guess what that person meant exactly all we can do is speculate but Mm -hmm. i i think that word means something and it's hard to kind of connect the dots and you think about is jealousy the motive and is it jealousy on the killer's end or on faith's end it brings me back to eric decoy jones because 
he perceived Faith to be the reason why he couldn't be with Karina. She drove Karina to get a restraining order against him, and she moved into the apartment where he once lived with Karina. So maybe in his angry, irrational mind, he thought that it was because Faith was jealous of their relationship and jealous of the time that he got to spend with Karina instead of her. So he was saying, I'm not stupid, bitch. Jealous. I'm That's kind stupid. of what my impression was with the phrasing, the way that you just said it. Yes, I, I can see it being someone perceives that Faith is out to get them. And is it because she's jealous? And th- that fits, but it doesn't fit because the DNA does not match Eric Decoy Jones. What if Eric or Karina got somebody else to do it? Is that possible? I don't. Anything's possible. Like, what if this unidentified dude is just some hitman? But I don't really think that they particularly had any funds to, you know, make it worth it for this guy. You know, it's so hard to say. Who knows if I I think it's possible and it's not unheard of for someone to recruit another person to commit a crime. Yeah. Usually we can see that in home invasion and robbery cases. People can promise their friend a certain amount of monetary gain if they participate in this robbery with them, certain things to kind of lure or convince someone. Maybe whoever wished Faith harm knew someone with terrible morals, someone who has a short fuse and is angry, and were able to manipulate them saying, oh, let's rob this place. They have a lot of money. And as a bonus, there's a sexy girl living there. I don't know how these people think or talk, but if you can kind of develop a squad for a home invasion, I can see how you can perhaps manipulate a morally depraved person back home that has no connection to the case at all into committing a crime where they might stand to benefit. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It would explain why there's no matches. That's what's insane to me. And, I, and I'll keep saying this. Almost 800 DNA samples have been submitted for comparison with no match. It's possible that we don't know everyone Faith knew, everyone Karina knew, but that is a lot of people. I didn't... It's very thorough of the police. That's right. And and it's just baffling to think, even with all of the comparisons made, that it still hasn't been solved. And I wonder if maybe that's why the investigators on Breaking Homicide questioned... The forensic evidence they found questioned whether or not the DNA came from the killer. They didn't use the the phenotypal composite. They didn't talk about, they denied that Faith was even raped. In my opinion, the show presented their evidence and their overall case with Karina Rosario in mind as their suspect. It's a popular theory on the internet that Karina Rosario was responsible or involved in the murder of Faith Hedgepeth. So let's unpack some of these pieces of circumstantial evidence that people have used to build a case against Karina. It should be noted that there is actually no case being built against Karina by the Chapel Hill Police Department. In all of their statements, they have said that she is cooperative and she is not a person of interest. So why does everybody think that she did it? Because of little pieces of evidence that they find suspicious. Let's start with the 911 call. Let's play that right now so people can get an idea of why people find this so suspicious. Eleven oh one a.m. 44 seconds, September 7, 2012. 
are on 911. Where is your emergency? Hi, um, I just walked into my apartment and my friend just waited to be unconscious. Okay, what's your address, ma'am? I live at Hawkins at the view. Um, give me, give me the address. I just, I just moved here. I'm about to get it. Oh my god. It's um five six three nine Old Chapel Hill Road in Durham. Okay, repeat it to me. So, repeat it to me so I make sure I've got it correct. Okay. Five six three nine Old Chapel Hill Road. It's a okay. What's it? No two. Sixteen oh two. Yes. What's the phone number you're calling from? Two zero one three two one eight zero seven five. Okay. You say your friend is unconscious. He's unconscious. I just walked in the apartment and there looks like there's blood everywhere. Okay. Listen to me. Okay. Listen to me. Listen to me. Somebody's already sending me ambulance. Okay. I need to get some information from you, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna tell you how to help her. Okay. Okay. How how old is your how old is she? She's nineteen. Okay. I don't know. I don't okay. want to touch her, but listen to me. Is is she breathing? I don't know. You need to check and see. Is she breathing? I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay, listen to me. There's blood everywhere. There's what? There's blood everywhere. Okay. I don't know what happened. Okay, is she on her back or is she on her laying on her stomach? She's on her back, but like she, I think she fell off the bed because she's like off the bed. There's blood all over the pillows, like in the comforter. I just don't know what happened. Okay. All right, listen to me, all right? There's someone coming. Yes, I've got somebody coming. I've got somebody coming. I need for you to help her. I need for you to go up to her. We need to see if she's breathing or not. Okay? I think so. Okay. Listen to me. Go up. The paramedics are on their way. I want you to stay on the line. I'm going to tell you what to do next, all right? Are you right by her now? Yes. Okay. Listen carefully. She's not moving. Okay. No. Will you touch her arm? Tell me how does she feel. She's not moving. Okay, ma'am. We need to find out if we can help her or not. You've got to, you know, do as I'm asking so we can help her. All right? Okay. Okay. If you can, lay her flat on her back. Remove any pillow. Lay her flat on her back? Flat on her back. Remove any pillow. Okay. Okay. Kneel next to her. Look in her mouth for food or vomit. Okay, kneel next to her and look in her mouth for food or vomit. Tell me something. Listen to me. Listen to What is your name? I'm sorry. I'm really It's okay, honey. It's okay, honey. Listen to me. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Listen to me. When you touch her, how does she feel? 
Does she feel what? warm? No, she feels cold. She feels cold? Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Don't touch anything yes. else, okay? Don't touch oh anything else. Okay, they're on their way. I've got police on the way to you, and I've got, a, got medics on the way. Okay? I can't believe this. Okay. What room is she in? She's in my bedroom. Okay, I want you to go back into the living room, okay? You I need don't to go know in. what's going on. Like, okay, listen, listen to me. in my room that, like, was not here before. Okay, it was listen like to someone me. someone that came in here. Okay, okay. It really does. All right, what, what did like you say your name was again? Okay, I don't... Okay, listen to me. Do, don't touch anything else in the room. I'm not I want you to leave leave that room, go into the living room. You I need did. to make sure, make sure the door is unlocked so somebody can get in, so that the medics and the police can get in when they get there. Okay? It's unlocked. Okay, now yeah, tell me again. Okay, they're on their way, honey. They're coming as fast yeah. as they can. You just stay on the phone with me, all right? I am. Okay, tell me again what your name is. It looks like someone has been in there because she's okay. not like this. Okay, okay. Is. I've let them know. We've got everybody on the way to help you. Now, tell me again what your name is. What? What is your name? Karina Rosario. Karina? Yes. Okay, Karina. You just you yes. sit down on the couch and don't touch anything, okay? You just sit down. I'm not touching anything. Okay, okay. I just want you to sit down because the the police and the medics are going to be there. Just They're coming just okay. as fast as they can, all right? Okay. You just you just stay on the phone with me. Okay. okay. You just stay on the phone with me. Are you sure there's something? Yes, ma'am. They are on their way. I just can't believe this. No, someone had to have been in there. Okay. We've got we've got first responders on the way. There's a fire truck coming. There's a medic coming, and the sheriff's department's on the way to you. Okay. okay. You just stay on the phone with me until somebody gets there with you. Okay. All right? Okay. Okay, Karina. How old are you, Karina? I'm 20. You're 20? Okay, hon. You're doing all right. You're doing all right. You just stay on the I phone with the me. I see the police. You see the police? Yes. Okay. You let me know when they get in there with you, and then you can talk to them, all okay. right? I just don't want you to be alone right now. Okay. Okay. You just stay on the phone with me. Okay. Are they in there with you? Are they coming in? Yes. Thank you. Okay, honey. All right. Bye-bye. All right. People think it's weird that she started the call with hi. They perceive a lack of urgency in her tone. She can't recall her address. so They feel like she might be stalling. She doesn't refer to Faith by name. 
She doesn't acknowledge the presence of Marisol, who's in the room with her. People also don't think she sounds upset enough. But who's to say what a person is supposed to act like when they discover a dead body? Because most people can't relate to that. There's no textbook reaction. I think what's most likely is that she went into shock. And you can hear that she was crying and was genuinely upset. She wasn't screaming and she wasn't out of control. But to me, she sounded upset. But that's... Her voice was shaky. She kept repeating, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. You know, she didn't know what was happening. It seemed to me like she walked in to a complete, for lack of a better term, shit show and really was just at a loss for words. I think she was in shock and her psyche kind of shut down and she was in denial. She kept saying, I think she's unconscious. She wasn't really ready to admit to herself or to the dispatcher that Faith was dead, even though I think... It was pretty obvious. You can hear that Karina starts to cry when the dispatcher instructs her to touch Faith to test the temperature of her skin. And she said she's cold. I think some people will say that, oh, well, of course, Karina knew she was dead. Why is she saying that she's unconscious? She was in denial. I think this is a 20 year old young woman who is experiencing the single most traumatic moment of her life. And I think that kind of explains subsequent behavior as well. People think it's suspicious that she refuses to engage in the media. She won't interview. She eliminated all of her social media presence following Faith's murder. And at this point, she won't even take the calls of Faith's father, Roland. I think it's because of the trauma. I think reliving it is probably really difficult. It would be nice if she was more cooperative. I think it would take away some of the suspicion. But she is cooperating with the Chapel Hill Police Department. And that is what matters. It does. It would be nice if she would communicate with Faith's dad, especially because the two of them did have a relationship. Roland would take the girls grocery shopping starting in freshman year. So it's, it's a shame, but... Karina just sounds like someone that's traumatized to me. Next is that Karina did not lock the door behind her when she left for the night. And there is an explanation to that, an innocent one. The two women shared a single key to the apartment. And when the apartment was searched, the house key was found in the bedroom where Faith died. Karina couldn't lock the door behind her without having the key. And she expected Faith to pick her up the following day and would need the key to lock the door behind her. So I think that it was because they only had one key. I understand this is probably what made me feel suspicious because she knew that she had a dangerous, violent ex-boyfriend that hated Faith. Living in that apartment complex, it's 4.30 in the morning and it's a woman all by herself. I think it was irresponsible and reckless, but would Faith still be alive if she did lock the door behind her? We can't say for sure because we don't know who killed her. Yeah, and they could have broken in if the door was locked. I don't think much was going to stop that person from harming Faith that night. We can talk about the fact that we don't know if the person came to the apartment with the intention of killing Faith because all the weapons that were used were already there. They originated in the apartment. So who knows if this act was even premeditated. So if it wasn't, maybe the locked door would have been a barrier. But I think that's something that Karina regrets. And if there were two keys, maybe she wouldn't have done that. Right. I agree with that completely. Another factor is the fact that Karina wanted to leave Thrill Nightclub because of a stomach ache is what the story is. They get back around three and then Karina starts messaging different men on her phone. 
messages are coming from Faith's phone trying to convince a guy to reach out to Karina. Suddenly, she wants to go hang out with a man. People think that's odd. Maybe she was trying to lure Faith back at a predetermined time to set her up. What do you think about that, Melina? Well, I don't think that's necessarily true because I think that sometimes if some girls are having a girls' night out and then maybe one of the girls wants to meet up with a guy and hook up, maybe said girl might say they have a stomach ache so they can leave and then hang out with the guy, right? Without making her single friend feel ditched. Yeah, that's a possibility. I think there's a number of explanations for that. For one, people use the stomach ache or headache excuse to get out of things they don't want to do. Karina might not have been having a fun night. There's so many explanations. She could have just wanted to see a guy. Like, it could be as simple as that. And I don't think... I think that the explanation of her trying to get Faith back or lure her back at a predetermined time is the least simple and probably least tangible explanation out of all of the different reasons there could be. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty intricate conspiracy if that were the case. Right, and then how are they keeping track of this conspiracy? Are they texting about it? They, Surely there'd be evidence of that. They seized Karina's phone and laptop. They would have found evidence of some conspiracy unless they were communicating by carrier pigeon or yeah something else. More likely is that maybe somebody was following them or watching them and waited until she was alone was faith even the intended target right that's an interesting thing too if you can look into the way the note is left we were talking maybe it wasn't even for faith faith and karina both had dark long curly hair similar complexion similar build it could have been a case of mistaken identity and if the target was karina that would effectively exonerate karina so that's kind of something interesting to look into as well yeah Finally, there is the pocket dial voicemail. While Faith was at the thrill, she made a call or her phone made a call to a friend of hers and her friend missed the call and it went to voicemail. It's really difficult to hear anything that's going on. So I can't decipher anything. It's super open to interpretation. Some people say they can hear two women arguing. Faith's father says he can hear his daughter yelling, ow. An expert, or I don't know if he cleaned it up, but this was someone that works with audio and tries to clear it up. He hears someone say, I didn't do it, Rosie. And the name Rosie said a number of times. Now, Karina's full name is Karina Rosario. And it's possible that people called her Rosie as a nickname because it's a variant of her surname. Also named in that voicemail is someone named Eric. And that makes people think, oh my goodness, Clearly, it's Karina and Eric. The problem with that theory is that Chapel Hill police have confirmed that Eric Takoy Jones was not at the Thrill nightclub that night, and he didn't go by Eric. He went by Takoy. So I feel like that evidence is really weak. I don't hear anything. I don't know how he heard Rosie. I don't know if he had had knowledge of the case before this happened. People are upset and outraged by this unsolved case, and maybe they're trying to connect dots in their head. People are prone to that, but Eric wasn't there or Takoy wasn't there. And you can't prove that even if there was an argument going on, that the argument involved Faith or Karina. It could have been an argument of somebody else. I mean, if it was in Faith's pocket, it was most likely Faith and Karina, I would say. But you can't hear anything, but make up your own mind. 
It's my opinion that the audio is so indecipherable and honestly just an ear sore to have included onto this feed. However, if you are so inclined, please feel free to search for it on YouTube and let us know if you hear anything. Six years have gone by and the Hedgepeth family still does not have answers as to what happened to their daughter Faith. Faith has not received the justice she deserves. If you have any information regarding the homicide of Faith Hedgepeth, please contact the Chapel Hill Police Department at 1-919-968-2760. Take a look at the phenotyping composite. If you recognize this person, call in a tip. This case is solvable and Faith deserves justice. Someone knows something and we really just want justice for Faith. True Crime Twins is written and hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. It is produced by Crawlspace Media. Our music was composed by the captain, host of True Crime Garage. Special thanks to Tim Polari, Lance Reen and to all of our listeners. <laughs>